We're starting this new series, and I got to be honest with you, I've never done anything exactly like this before, so be in prayer for me. Um, But we are talking all this year about God's purpose for our lives. Every one of us was created for a purpose in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared ahead of time for us to do, Ephesians 2.10. But God cares about the bigger issues that we struggle with. The, The things that are tearing apart our culture matter to God, and we have a part to play in those. The title of the sermon today is Washington and Jerusalem because there was an old saying, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? Back then, Athens was sort of the, the center of where thought came from and, and, and broader culture. And so there was this thought, well, you know, let's keep religious things where religious things belong and, and then stay out, keep that out of the public square. Well, today it's Washington, D.C. where so much of our issues are centered. And as God's people, we can't afford, and our culture can't afford for God's people to sit this out. We have to be engaged. But what does that look like? We're going we're gonna to be talking over the next several weeks about some of the issues that we debate online and on TV and in the voting booth. We're going to be talking about issues of addiction and the wave of addiction that's flooding through our culture today and where we should stand. Racial reconciliation. I've got a good friend who's going to come help me. Help me. He's got experience. He's, he is a man of mixed race himself, and, and he works with young African-American men. He's going to help us understand what we as a church can do to bring reconciliation on that issue. Uh, shifting standards on sexuality as our culture continues to believe different things than what Scripture says about sexuality. Where should we stand and what should our role be? Immigration, as, a, as their culture changes around us demographically, what is our job? Parenting, what, as, we, as a church family, those of us who have kids at home and those of us who don't, what should we be doing? What should our goal be to build up families? What about marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? What does a, a healthy marriage look like and how can we as a church family uh, build up the marriages in our body and in our community? And then finally, being truly pro-life. What does that look like? Is it, is it just legislation or does it involve something more? How should we as God's people make a difference? Now, the theme verse for this whole series is Philippians 3.20. Some of you know Philippians 3.20. If you don't know it, you're going to know it by the end of this series because I'm going to say it to you over and over again. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await from there a Savior who is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, many of us, probably almost all of us, American citizens, and and I'm glad to be, but my primary citizenship is in the New Jerusalem. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He taught us that we should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, my primary goal, my primary identity is that I serve Christ. Once I I got baptized, like, like Beatrix and Mike did this morning, I I was saying, from now on, my primary allegiance is to you, Lord, and my goal is to bring your kingdom to come on earth and to show people what it's like. Think about it this way. Any immigrant group who moves into a new country, they bring some of their ways with them. That's why after church today, some of you are going to go out and get some good Tex-Mex, and some of you are going to go out and get Italian or Chinese, or maybe you're even going to go a little further and get some pho at a Vietnamese place. I mean, there's, there's so many ways that, that other cultures have brought their cultures with them. We, as God's people, have to bring the culture of the kingdom of God around us that changes the culture of our country. But what does that look like? And a couple of disclaimers as we get started on this. First of all, this is not a series on how you should vote. This is not a series on what our leaders in Washington or Austin or anywhere else should be doing. I have my opinions on those things. 
But that's exactly what they are, opinions. And when I get up behind this pulpit, or anybody else does, our job, our goal has to be to rightly handle God's truth, as it says in 2 Timothy 2.15. I owe you the Word of God. See, I have opinions, and you and I can talk about those opinions when we're drinking coffee together or whatever, but I'm wrong a lot on politics. I can look back at some things that I used to believe, and I go, man, I was so wrong. People I voted for that I think, what was I thinking? I will be wrong in the future, but God's Word is never wrong. It is truth without mixture of error. So when I stand up here and when I represent the church before you, I'm going to preach the truth as best I know how. And you hold me accountable to that. Also, when we're, when we're occupying this pulpit, we need to make sure that we don't do anything to distract people from the gospel or to put up an artificial barrier to the gospel. So let me tell you what I mean specifically. If somebody, if I get up here and I talk about who I think you should vote for and how I think our leaders should act, those are my opinions and they're strongly held and I have every right to have them. But what if someone comes to our church or they, or they watch the, the video online, or they listen to a podcast and they think, oh, so what it means to be a Christian is to vote that way, and I don't vote that way, so I guess I can't be a Christian. I don't want anything to stand in the way of someone coming to know Christ. And I, I think if, if my vision for this church, it, well, let me say that a better way, because it's not about me. If we're the church God wants us to be, You're going to look around one day and you're going to see all different colors of people sitting in these pews. And you're also going to see people who will disagree with you 180 degrees on certain political issues, but you'll be able to look at each other and say, we're brothers because Christ died for both of us. And we're drawn to the same Jesus. And we can work together on all that other stuff. There's a second thing I need to say. All of this is probably going to make us uncomfortable Some of you are already feeling uncomfortable. Some of you are here for the first time. You're like, I walked into this? Really? But understand something. The Word of God should make us feel uncomfortable sometimes. Sometimes it's comforting. There's a reason why we put certain verses on calligraphy on our walls and put them on bumper stickers on our car. But some parts of the Bible make us uncomfortable. And they should. If you're not uncomfortable sometimes when you're reading God's Word, you're not really reading it. And I want to say this, and I should say this every Sunday. So what I'm about to say goes for every Sunday, but especially for this series. If you feel uncomfortable because you think I've mishandled God's Word, if you think, you know, you made a leap from that Scripture to that application that doesn't work, or you're saying something that is absolutely not biblically true, you need to come talk to me. And I can't say that strongly enough. And I I know some of you are like, oh, but you're the pastor. I I don't have... exclusive authority in God's Word. All of us have the same Word of God. And if you think I've made a mistake or I'm preaching untruth, you owe it to me as a brother and to this church as a whole to come talk to me. Don't talk about me. Don't sit there stewing in your pew or, or thinking all week long, man, I hope God strikes him dead for his heresy. Come talk to me. My email address is in the bulletin. My phone number is, is very clear. So get in touch with me and let's talk. Because we need to be on the same page, and I need to make sure I'm speaking the truth. So again, that goes for every Sunday, but especially during this series. So the question we're going to talk about today is not any of the stuff I I just mentioned, all the issues that we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. We are going to touch on those, but today I want to specifically ask the question, how do we engage in contentious issues and still honor God? 
And the reason I say it that way is when you look at the way people engage politically today, engage on cultural issues, there's no grace. It's all about when at all costs. It's all about painting your opponent as evil, as foolish, as stupid, and I have to win. Politics has become a zero-sum game. If I win, you lose. If you win, I lose. And so I have to win. And so I can't concede that you're right about anything because if I do that, I might not win. And so it's all about speaking with anger, setting up straw men and knocking them down, manipulating the truth, ignoring certain inconvenient truths on your side so you can pump up the things you like. And can I say this? Yes, I can. Christians that I see engaging politically don't seem to do any different than the rest of the culture. Y'all, I'm on Facebook, okay? And I see a lot of anger. I see a lot of hate. I don't see a real distinct difference between my Christian friends engaging politically and my non-Christian friends, left or right. And there should be a distinct way. So what we're going to do here is I want to talk about history. I want to talk about from the beginning how God's people have engaged with culture on these big issues. And we're going to go through different eras of history. If you don't like history, stick with me. It's not going to last long. It'll be over soon. Sort of like when you go to the doctor, it'll be for your good, okay? If you are into history, if you're a professional historian, I apologize. I'm not a professional historian. I didn't even sleep in a Holiday Inn Express last night. But we're going to try to look at, at broad history here at some, some examples, some, some lessons that we can learn, and then we're going to close with four questions every one of us need to be asking ourselves anytime we engage in one of these issues. Whether we're stepping into the voting booth, we're about to send that post on Facebook, whether we're talking to a friend or talking to somebody who disagrees with us, here are four questions we need to keep in mind. So, History first. So the first three centuries after Christ, that's where we're going to start. After Jesus, the first three centuries of the Christian era was life in a pagan empire. It was an empire, which means there was no voting. You didn't get to choose your leaders. And because it was a pagan empire, Christians were despised because they believed in one God. And it wasn't any of the Roman gods, and it wasn't the Caesar. They didn't sacrifice to Caesar. They didn't serve in the Roman military. They didn't, they didn't do a lot of the things. They didn't participate in the games. They were outcasts, and they were a tiny minority, and this was a difficult time to be a believer in Christ. They had no voice. They had no cultural influence. All they knew to do is keep on worshiping in those catacombs where they can't invade and kill you all, and keep on serving Christ faithfully. And so they, they practiced a couple of principles. They practiced that one we talked about at the beginning. We are citizens of heaven, but there's a couple more I want to show you. Romans 13, 1 through 2. Paul writes, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So what Paul is writing there is he's saying, listen, to obey the king is to obey the Lord. Be a good citizen. Wherever you live, be a good citizen. Follow the rules. Respect the authorities. That includes the police. That includes kings, presidents, governors, mayors, city council. Obey them. Respect them. Be good citizens wherever you are. Now, the other principle that they had to live in tension with that one with was Acts chapter 5.29. Because if, if you just take Romans 13, it's like, okay, no matter what the king says, i got to do it. Well, you know where that can lead, right? 
Look at Acts 5.29. It says, we must obey God rather than men. And I'll give you the context of that. That's Peter standing in front of the Sanhedrin. Who are the Sanhedrin? They are the Jewish ruling council in the time of Christ. They're the ones who condemned Jesus to death. They're the ones that Peter and the other apostles were so afraid of that they stayed behind locked doors, that they fled Christ's arrest. That, I mean, these were serious men. They were the leaders of the Jews. Of course, the Romans were in charge, but they allowed the Jews to govern themselves, and this was the ruling council. So the ruling council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, says to Peter and the other apostles, also Jewish men, you have to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And Peter says, I'm sorry, we respect you, you're our leaders, we've been told to respect you and obey you, but when we come into a place where God says to do this and you say to do that, we got to go with God. Jesus told us to preach in his name. Jesus told us to lay down our lives for him. You're commanding us not to preach in his name. We can't do that. So there comes a point for every believer where obedience to and allegiance to his country gets in the way of following Christ. You have to choose Christ. That's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. So the early church had to live in the tension of those two commands, and it meant that sometimes they paid the price with their lives, with their economy, with, with everything. Because think about it, if you're a Roman and you've got a neighbor who's a Christian and, and you're, you just experienced some personal tragedy, or you're a, a, a citizen of a town that has just experienced a, a, a plague of some kind, or you're the Caesar and all of a sudden you've lost a battle and, and you've got to blame someone, it's very easy for you to say, well, it's these Christians' fault because they refuse to worship our gods. So maybe if we kill a few of those, the gods will be pleased and everything will go well. Besides that, of course, it's always politically expedient to pick on some minority group. So the Christians took the brunt of it. For 300 years, off and on, they would experience terrible persecution. They would experience constant ostracism, constantly be seen as the weirdos. I'm not going to let my daughter marry one of those. I'm not going to let that guy work in my company. So it was a very difficult time. And then we move on to the next period, 313 to 1500s. We're calling this Christendom because what happens in 313 is the Roman emperor, a man named Constantine, remember world history? Constantine signs the Edict of Milan, which says, from now on and henceforth, Christianity is legal. And you can imagine what an exciting day that was for the early Christians. All of a sudden, they could come out of those catacombs. They could build church buildings in the public view. They could, they could get actual jobs. They could be free from the fear that, that soldiers are going to come grab me and throw me to the lions or burn me at the stake. This was a day of victory. But over time, that victory turned sour because what happens when a group that was socially ostracized, suddenly becomes socially advantageous because there were so many Christians. By the way, during that period of persecution, the church just grew and grew and grew. And Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said the, the, seed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You can't kill us with the sword because the Holy Spirit lives. Christ is risen. He just keeps on making more Christians. Well, so by the time Christianity becomes legal, there are Christians all over the empire. So all of a sudden, people who weren't Christians say, you know, if I become a Christian, it's going to be good for me socially, for me economically, maybe even politically. And then as the Roman Empire breaks up and, and you have uh, Britain and, England, and France and Denmark and all these other countries, they each have their own state church. So if you're born in one of those countries, 
And you're not Muslim or Jewish, you're baptized at birth. And so to be a citizen of that country is essentially to be a part of the church, to be a Christian. And in fact, it goes further than that. The church held all the political and academic power during that era. This is why I'm calling it Christendom, because the Western world was the church. I mean, your king, if you grew up in one of those countries, your king was crowned by an archbishop or by a pope. If you wanted to be a scientist or a philosopher, or you wanted to teach literature or any other academic career, in other words, if you didn't want to work with your hands, you wanted to work with your mind, then you went to the church. You became a priest, you became a monk, you became a nun, because that's where the learning was. Literally, people couldn't read unless they were in the clergy. And you can probably guess where this led. Sure, most most Christians were incredibly devout back then, but you think about somebody like the Medici family, very, very powerful people that wanted greater power, so they'd send their sons to the monastery, shave a little tonsure on their head and say, you're a monk, because that's how you're going to become a power broker when you grow up. And you can imagine when people are entering the ministry or are becoming part of the church specifically so they can wield power, you can imagine some of the awful things that were done in the name of Christ in those days. And if you can imagine that, it's even worse than you can imagine. And then the 1500s get here, and that's when the Protestant Reformation starts. And you've got people like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli who stand up and say, wait a second, God has given us His Word. He wants all people to know His Word. Take the Bible, stop chaining the Bible to the pulpit, literally, and put it in the language of the people so they can read it, so they can understand it, because a church council doesn't have the exclusive authority to preach, a pope or an archbishop or a priest, they're not, they're not the only ones who should have contact with God. All people should know God and know God's Word. Well, as they democratize that, as they preach the priesthood of all believers, which is biblical, the larger world started to say, well, if that's true, then maybe these kings and queens aren't divine either. Maybe, maybe they don't know everything. Maybe our voice should count, and then we get the Enlightenment. And that leads to the next era. In 1776, we get the birth of our nation, a representative democracy, a republic that says all people have a vote. Of course, back then, white people. Fortunately, we changed that. But all people have a vote, and that vote counts. And they put some very important things in the Constitution. They learn from the mistakes of the past. Even though, even though all Christians in those days, all, all Americans weren't Christians, not even all the founding fathers were Christians, men like, like uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and others were deists, but, but they understood, they understood what was most important. They put these provisions in the Constitution that said, the government will not have charge of religion anymore. There's not going to be any more state churches, and nobody can be compelled to worship, but at the same time, the government's not going to get in the way of you worshiping. You have freedom to worship as you choose. It's not going to be like it was in the past. No more religious wars. No more compulsion. And I call that era Christian America specifically because even though all Americans weren't Christians by any means, the church was still such a dominant force in public culture. I mean, even a secular historian would agree with me and say, yeah, yeah, the church had an... an Organized Christianity had a, a huge influence on the way culture was shaped. You just look at the way letters were written back then and speeches were given. Think about the greatest speeches in the history of our nation. One of the greatest, Lincoln's second inaugural, when he stands up and, and kind of reframes the Civil War. It reads like a sermon. He's quoting Scripture. He's preaching to us. 
100 years later, Martin Luther King, I have a dream. That's a sermon. That's not just a speech. Because America had the soul of a church. America was you know, a nation of all belief systems, but, but we, there was a consensus, a cultural consensus, that there is a God, and there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong, and it sort of shaped our values. Protestant work ethic, the respect of all people, compassion for the poor. Lots of things that we hold dear came from that Christian consensus. A lot of great social movements that brought about important changes came about during that time, led by Christian men and women. Think about the Civil War. Think about uh, the abolition of slavery. Even before the war started, there were men and women of God who were standing up against slavery. They weren't my Southern Baptist forebears, sad to say, but they were men and women of God. hundred years later, the Civil Rights Movement. Those were Christian clergy leading those marches and those demonstrations that woke America up to the fact that you can't say we're a nation of free people when certain people don't have the same rights. That was led by believers in Christ. And of course, you've got some mistakes along the way. Prohibition, I think we can all agree, although our forebears had good intentions when they said the world would be better off if people weren't weren't drinking their lives away, it didn't work. We couldn't legislate that. We couldn't make people better by creating certain laws. And, and, but, the, but through it all, everyone knew there's this cultural consensus. There's a, there's a civil religion aspect to it, but there's a cultural consensus that God is important, that we're one nation under God. And that starts to fall apart in the 1960s. And if you lived during those days, you probably uh, think back and, and, and can kind of point to the markers along the way. But by the time I'm growing up in the 70s and 80s, you can see the, the cultural influence of the church has, has really started to decline. And there are other voices that are more influential. And so in the early 80s, we get the present situation, which, which we call culture war. Because what happened was there were Christians who came along and said, We've lost influence in our culture. Things are deteriorating around here. There's a lack of respect for human life. Abortion on demand is, is just is killing thousands of kids, uh, unborn children every day. Um, there's a lack of respect for the traditional family. There's a deterioration of marriage and a breakdown in parenting. There's a flouting of traditional forms of morality. And, and so that's causing our culture to become much more profane and vulgar. Uh, there's a spread in... in pornography, there's a spread in things that just make our society more coarse, less honoring to God, and we want to step forward and we want to take back our culture for Christ. So their idea was, you know, right now Christians just kind of vote as they see fit. Well, we're going to kind of unify all Bible-believing Christians and say, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you need to vote this way because it's time for us to take our culture back and, and once again be the dominant force in American culture. And you think back on that, that's the early 1980s, so that's almost 40 years ago. In the time since, in some sense it's worked because evangelical Christians have become one of the most powerful voting blocks in our country. I mean, there are presidents you can point to over the last 40 years and say, okay, that guy probably wouldn't have been elected without the Bible-believing Christian vote. On the other hand, can you think of any ways in which our culture today is more biblical than it was 40 years ago? In issues of equality, yeah, maybe, but I don't think we can take credit for that because that wasn't one of the goals of the culture war. Abortion's still legal. Families are still falling apart. Our culture has gotten more vulgar, not less. The church's influence, and, and here's the really disturbing part, the church's influence has waned. 
The church's reputation has suffered. Generation of my children, the millennial generation, is becoming the, the least religious generation in American history. And many of them say, it's because churches are too political. I, I, I don't need that. I still believe Jesus was a great guy, but I don't need church. There's a, there's a statistic that people like to quote in, in recent days. Um, in 2011, a poll asked the question, can a candidate who has acted immorally in his personal life be an ethical leader? And they ask all kinds of different people. Evangelical Christians, only 30% said yes. So only 30% of Christians said, yeah, if a guy acts immorally in his private life, I will still vote for him because I, I still think he can do the right thing. 70% of us said no. No, that, that disqualifies him or her. They asked the same question five years later. By the way, that made us the lowest of anybody in the poll, lowest of any group. They asked that same question five years later in 2016. This time, 72% of evangelicals said, yeah, I'll vote for someone, even if they've got some bad stuff and some baggage, some, some immoral stuff in their personal life. Um, and, and now we're the highest of any group in our willingness to overlook personal immorality in our leaders. Now, what happened in those five years? Well, I think we all know what happened. We suddenly had a candidate who a lot of Christians wanted to vote for, and they said, well, I know he's done some bad things. I know he doesn't exhibit very good character, but he pushes the, the views that I agree with, so I, I want to vote for him. So I'm going to change the way I think. And you may think that was a good decision. I'm not here to argue whether it was or not. What I'm saying is what the world sees when they see that is they say Christians are no different than anybody else. They're just another voting block. They'll compromise their principles if it means staying in power. So the culture war, we've won some victories, but has it been worth it? Has it really benefited the cause of Christ? So where does that leave us? What do we do? How do we, how do we behave in a way that is distinctly Christian when we engage in issues like this? How do we engage with others and change the world while keeping in mind our true mission. Put it this way, when you get on Facebook and you debate with someone or when you're talking to your neighbor, how do you represent Christ well? Four questions we need to ask ourselves constantly. Number one, do I love those who disagree with me? Do I truly love those who disagree with me? Can we, can we just agree on this? Can we agree that the people who vote differently than you and I do, Jesus loves them just as much as he loves us? Can we agree with that? Can we agree that he died for their sins just like he died for mine? That he wants them to join his family so they can spend eternity with him just as much as he wanted us to join his family? Can we all agree on that? Can we raise our hand and say, yeah, I agree with that? Okay, question. Do you think they feel loved by you? When you talk to them, do they say, okay, this guy disagrees with me. This lady obviously sees things differently, but they care about me. When you're, when you're about to send that comment on Facebook, when you're about to speak that word, do you think in your mind, okay, let's make sure they know I'm doing this out of love? Because some of us need to pray and say, Lord, I'll tell you the truth. These people make me so mad and I, I just can't stand them. So help me to love them like you do. Second question. Do I put too much hope in a candidate or a party? Some years ago, uh, it was the day after a presidential election, and I, I saw a, a lady who went to my church, and, and I said, how you doing? And she looked like, she, like she'd lost her dog, and, and 
you know, everything in her life had gone bad. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, I can't, I can't believe that election. I can't believe they voted for that other guy. And I said, yeah, I'm pretty surprised too. And, and she, said, she said these words to me. She said, how could God do, to this, do this to us? How could God do this to us? And I said, well, you know that we live in a republic, so we all voted. So that means God didn't do this to us. We did this to ourselves, right? I mean, we get the leaders we deserve. And she disagreed with me. She said, no, no, God should have struck that other person down. God should have put our guy in. And it occurred to me, and I didn't say this to her because I, I, I just that bothered me all day, but, and it, it occurred to me later, she had placed all her hopes in that election. If her guy didn't win, all was lost. Listen, elections matter, and we should vote. God, God's put us in a, a nation where we have that freedom. You don't realize how rare that is in human history? Don't squander that opportunity. I'm talking to you millennials. Vote. But even if you elect the best person you've ever seen run for office, he's not going to fix what's wrong. We have one king who we eagerly await, and his name is Jesus Christ. And when he reigns over the world, that's when you're going to see every problem of our culture disappear. And until then, the best we can do is people who mess things up a little less than the other people. And I, I hate to sound cynical, but if you're a Christian politician, I hope you see yourself that same way. Elections are important. But don't place your hope on them. You know what you call it when you place all your hope in something other than Christ? That's called idolatry. And that tends to be looked down upon by Scripture. So be careful. Ask yourself the question, am I putting all my hope in my party winning the midterms? Am I putting all my hope in my candidate winning this election? Third question, and here's where you're going to get mad at me. So get ready. You ready? You picking up your rocks? Here we go. Um, am I motivated by fear? The most common command in Scripture Anybody know? Fear not. Don't be afraid. It's repeated over and over again, more than any other command. And it doesn't mean that it's a sin to feel afraid, okay? I know that because Jesus, the night before he died, was in the Garden of Gethsemane. You read that story, there is no other way to interpret that, but Jesus was terrified because he was about to take upon himself sins of the world. He was about to experience hell on earth. But what happened? He said, even though this is the last thing in the world I want to do, I'm going to do it because my God wants me to. I'm going to do it for the joy set before me. Fear not doesn't mean don't feel afraid. You can't control what you feel. Fear not means don't let fear stop you from doing what you're called to do. Because what happens when we engage in these issues out of fear? We become selfish. Fear is inherently a selfish motivation. Because when you're afraid, you want to protect what you have. When you're afraid, you're not worried about what's good for the larger society. You're not worried about showing love to your opponent. When, when you're afraid, your opponent is a demon. When you're afraid, all you care about is protecting yourself and what you have. And we can't be that way as Christians. We're not honoring God when we act out of fear. There's a man, I read an article recently written by a Christian author, and he was talking about his parents. And he said, you know, my parents are the best people you'll ever know. They're good, God-fearing people, salt of the earth, kind, humble, generous. But he said, recently, you know, a while back, he said, I noticed when I'd go over to their house that they always had the news on. And that wasn't, that wasn't true before. They, they would... 
they would always watch the news before they went to bed or maybe while they were eating supper. But now, every time we went there, the news would be on. They'd found one of these 24-hour news channels, and they just kept it on all day, cranked up to 11 because Dad doesn't hear too good, and they would just watch it all day long. And he said, I noticed something else. Mom and Dad were always angry. All of a sudden, they were never this way before. And they hadn't changed their beliefs on anything. They weren't voting any differently. It's just now they were always upset. They were always mad. They were always like, man, can you believe these people? What's going to happen if this happens? And and, and I can't believe this. And he had to sit down with them. He had to kind of have an intervention with his parents. He had to point out, listen, I'm not saying that the news media is evil. They're just people like us, but they're a business. And their business runs on ratings and on web hits. And, and how do you get that? You, you get that by, say, by, by pointing to the most extreme things. And so if you watch nothing but the news, you're going to think there's nothing good happening in the world. You're going to think that every thunderstorm that happens is, is, is going to be a tornado. And, and every, every time the stock market falls, well, we're heading into depression. And anytime you see somebody with a different colored skin, well, they must be a terrorist. And he said, and not only that, but the opinion programs you watch, because they have a lot of these opinion shows where people get on and they talk and they interview others and they talk about their perspective. And he said, you know, the problem with those is they're not about offering solutions. They're not saying, okay, here's how we can work together to make this country better. They're saying, here's what I believe and everybody who believes differently is crazy. They're an idiot. Don't let them get power. They're, They're there to stir you up. Now, let's talk frankly, friends. I'm not saying it's a sin to watch the news, all right? But let's put it this way. If you're on the political right, and I think I can safely say a lot of people in this room are. Is that safe? If you're on the political right, can you imagine you just accidentally turn on one of those channels that speaks for the other side, and you see somebody like, say, a Rachel Maddow or an Al Sharpton doing their show? Can you imagine a day when one of those people gets on and says, you know what? Conservatives are actually really good people. I know we disagree on some things, but deep down inside, we want the same things. We want what's best for our country. So from now on, my program is going to be about finding ways where we can find common ground with them to work together to make this country a better place. Is that ever going to happen? Anybody? No, it's not going to happen. I'm not God. I don't know everything. I know that's never going to happen because that would be the end of their program. They would have no further reason to exist. Okay, you can say the exact same thing about a Sean Hannity, about a Glenn Beck, about a Bill O'Reilly before he got into all his trouble, about any of these people. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying you're a sinner if you watch that stuff. I am saying you need to ask yourself the question, does me watching this help me love my neighbor, help me trust the Lord more? Get me equipped to represent Christ in the world? Or does it just get me all stirred up? Just get me all angry? Just get me all upset and afraid? I mean, there are Christians who would tell me, yeah, I can watch a TV show with profanity and and with uh, illicit sex and, and gratuitous violence, and it doesn't hurt me spiritually. I can still serve Christ even though I'm watching that stuff because I know that's just fiction. And if you say that, God bless you. I'm not gonna judge you. That's between you and the Lord. A lot of my friends, a lot of my Christian friends who would never watch stuff like that need to ask themselves the question, is all my exposure to news and to commentary poisoning my soul in the same way that other stuff would? So 
that guy had that conversation with his parents, and his parents were like, okay, if you say so. So they went back to watching the news 30 minutes a day, and he had his parents back, joyful, happy, gracious, humble, not angry all the time. Listen, I'm not your son, and I'm not your dad, but I do love you, and because I love you, I'm telling you, some of you need to turn off the news. Some of you need to just stop watching it. Get up, check the headlines, pray about them, go on with your day. Believe it or not, the world will continue turning. All right? Nobody's throwing a rock at me yet, so I'm going to keep on. So last question. Number four, and this is the most important one. We need to ask ourselves, am I a culture warrior or am I a missionary? Is it my goal to take back my culture and make it our own so we can be the dominant figure again? Or is it my goal to see my neighbors come to Christ? And I'm not saying, well, let me just say what I'm going to say. When I was in seminary, so this is a couple of decades ago, there's a man who came and spoke in chapel one day, and he was very much a culture warrior. He would have identified himself that way. It was his goal to defeat uh, the other side in these cultural battles. He wrote commentaries in the newspaper. This was before the internet, but, um, so he didn't have a blog. But he, he, wrote, he wrote editorials. He was on CNN. He, he's a name that some of you would recognize if I mentioned. And he spoke to us in chapel and, and he was talking about what he did for a living, and, and he said, a, a reporter once asked me, what would America look like if you people had your way? And he said, my answer was, America would look like it used to look in the 1950s, except without the sexism or the racism. And I thought, when he said that, I thought, man, what a great answer. Because, you know, the 50s, from everything I've seen, that sounds like it was pretty good. But then later on, as I thought back on that, I thought, yeah, but that's not really what Christ has called us to do. Christ has not called us to fight for some long-ago, good old days mentality. Christ said, go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. We are not supposed to bring back 1950s America. Our goal is is to bring the kingdom of God. And those two aren't necessarily the same thing. But think about this. That doesn't mean we don't care about what's happening to our culture. It doesn't mean we just go and do evangelism and don't worry about the rest. Missionaries, when they go to a place, they bring their culture with them. Missionaries change the culture they're in. Think about when missionaries first went to India a couple hundred years ago. It was still common practice in that country for widows to be burned on the funeral pyres of their deceased husbands. Missionaries spoke out against that. It got changed. Missionaries to other countries brought literacy with them, modern medicine. They brought relief from poverty. They brought civil rights to oppressed minorities. They brought change with them. But all the time they knew, that's not my goal. That's not my aim. That's sort of like giving cancer. That's sort of like giving aspirin to a cancer patient. It's dealing with a symptom. But the real issue, the real problem is that humanity is separated from God. And until that's repaired, all these other problems won't be fixed. And so their goal was to bring the gospel, to bring the gospel of healing. They're, this guy's not a missionary, but I read a story this week about Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is a Christian. He's also a blues musician. Um, he's a black man, and he says his hobby is talking to white supremacists, which is kind of interesting. So when the KKK or the, or the neo-Nazis are having a big march, um, 
he goes into the crowd and just starts talking to people. And, and you would think they would reject him, but you'd be surprised if someone comes to you friendly and talking, even if you don't like their kind, you talk back. And, and when, he, when he's online and he sees some of these discussions, he, instead of flaming them, instead of trolling them, he actually starts emailing them or, or direct messaging them and, and having a dialogue. And, and Daryl Davis says he's led 200 white supremacists to Christ, which I think is pretty awesome. That's living as a missionary. That's, what does a missionary do? They go into a culture that is not their own. And instead of saying, I'm going to make this just like I want it to be, they say, I'm going to love the people around me. I'm going to be the best citizen I can possibly be. And I'm going to care about their problems. But most of all, I'm going to care about their soul. And can I be honest? If you don't hear anything else I've said, let me, let, I hope you hear this. When we become the church we're supposed to be, we're going to be a church full of people who consider themselves missionaries to Montgomery County, Texas. That's the goal. And the reason why is this. When God looked down on a world that was lost and, and hopeless, He didn't send a donkey and He didn't send an elephant. He sent a lamb. He sent the Lamb of God who laid down His life for the sins of the world and said, now anybody who wants to join God's family, no matter what they've done, can come on in. And that's what binds us together. And that's what makes us one. And that's what's going to solve the problems of the world ultimately because the Lamb will reign. And until then, that's our mission. And to that, we ought to all be able to say glory, hallelujah.